So we've now come to probably one of the most famous passages in the Gospel of John, and that's the test the spirits passage. Uh, and this is an excellent section of scripture, but we don't want to isolate it from the argument that John has built already. Remember, he's not giving us tests of salvation. He's giving us tests of abiding. Um, so we're going to see tonight that he doesn't speak of just one kind of spirit. He's not only speaking of uh, the satanic antichrist spirit, but he's going to say that anything that does not fall in line with biblical doctrine comes from a spirit that is not the spirit of God. So if a believer is teaching false doctrine, that false doctrine has come from an origin, not of God, but of a false spirit. That doesn't mean that the believer who is preaching that is not saved. It means that he is not acting in his faith. If he is doubting what the apostles have first handed down to him, that doubt is a spirit that is not of God. That is a spirit of the Antichrist. So remember, we are not looking at salvational issues. We're looking at sanctification issues. Uh, that being said, uh, it's only a possibility that a believer is preaching false doctrines. The primary uh, context, the primary view is looking at those non-Christians who are preaching false doctrines that might deceive Christians. So uh, we don't want to uh, forget that Christians can teach false doctrine. They can fall into false doctrines and be deceived by them. Uh, but the primary idea in John's gospel is to protect yourself from those false doctrines that come from satanic origins. <clears throat> Let's start here in our verse, 1 John 4, 1 through the first part of verse 2. And now verse 2, you'll notice at the end has a semicolon in the English translation. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a, right, a colon in the English translation. In the Greek, it's a semicolon, which means that these are two clauses, uh, and it has some sort of an idea of playing off one another. Now in the English translation, uh, I think this colon misses the point. Um, so let's read this verse, and I'll tell you why I think it should be a period, probably, rather than a colon. So this verse says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. So verse 2 what follows that is this um, the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, that many people believe is the prescribed test for testing the Spirit. So this is the one surefire test. Uh, I'm going to tell you, contrary to what most people will teach, this is not the one surefire test. This is an example of how to test the spirits. The, uh, and I'll read that. It says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Uh, so the danger with this is to accept anything that anyone says, so long as they um, admit that Christ uh, came in the flesh and that he is from God. Uh, but this is dangerous. If uh, if you believe any teacher who holds to this one doctrine, they might also be teaching other doctrines not related to this that are false doctrines. Those false doctrines are not from God. So we need to test every doctrine because every doctrine has a spirit behind it. 
So let's <clears throat> look again at our first verse. It says in verse two, the first part, by this, you know the spirit of God. Now I'm going to give you two Greek grammar terms. The first term is anaphoric, and the second term is cataphoric. Anaphoric means that it's looking backwards. Cataphoric means it's looking forward. So in verse two, we have this demonstrative pronoun, this. It's putas uh, in the Greek. So it says, by this, you know the spirit of God. This seems to be a or an anaphoric demonstrative pronoun. Those big words basically mean that this is looking backwards. It's saying testing the spirits is how we know the spirit of God. It's not saying this one doctrine is how we know the spirit of God. <clears throat> so with that basic understanding, hopefully, um, let's look at a few different ways that the spirits are tested in the word of God. <clears throat> uh, first, we'll look at an example from Matthew 7, 15, where Christ is speaking to his uh, disciples about testing the spirits. He says, beware of the false prophets. Remember, the false prophets are those antichrists, the antichrist spirit that is already in the world. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So now raises the question, what is fruit? Is fruit words or is fruit works? <clears throat> Let's keep going. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. All right, so we've got similar to John's way of speaking. We have two absolutes. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. A bad tree has bad fruit. A good tree has good fruit. <clears throat> so what is the fruit? In Matthew 12, uh, during the rejection of Jesus Christ, when the Pharisees have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah over Israel, uh, Messiah, Jesus Christ, has some words to say about these Pharisees. He says basically that these Pharisees have led the nation of Israel astray. They've caused the nation to reject it, Jesus as the Messiah. So here's what he has to say about the fruit of those Pharisees. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And then he says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? Not do what is good, but speak what is good. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Jesus is relating the fruit of the Pharisees not to their works. They might do good things. And um, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, He's saying, you guys are doing the works of the law, but you are not keeping the spirit of the law. You're, you have the wrong purpose in your heart. So he's, he's saying the Pharisees do all the outward works that appear to be good, but what's wrong is their reason, their spirit, their purpose for doing it, and the words that they speak. They're coming to false conclusions. 
if you remember, the conclusion that they come to about Christ is that he's demon-possessed. Rather than saying he does these works by the power of the Spirit of God, they say he does these works by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies in Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew word for, or the Hebrew name for Satan. Uh, they say he is doing his works by the power of Satan, and Christ says, um, it can't be by the power of Satan because I'm casting out demons. A house divided cannot stand. Um, so Jesus is saying their words are the bad fruit that is coming from them. The doctrine that they are teaching is their bad fruit. <clears throat> so we know a tree by its fruit. We know a tree by the doctrine that it's preaching. We know a false teacher by the false doctrine. Uh, Paul, or no, not Paul. Uh, so here we have uh, John's words again. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. This is how we're going to know the spirit of God is if we test it, we can know it. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If they are teaching what is not revealed by God and the word of God, they are a false prophet. They come from a false spirit. So it's not only one test that we can do to any doctrine. We have to measure it against the word of God. In any place that it departs from the word of God, it is a false doctrine, and it comes from a false spirit. <clears throat> so in uh, 1 John 4, uh, the second part of verse 2, 2b, uh, until verse 3, uh, we see two different spirits, and these are the origins of these doctrines. If it's a good doctrine, it comes from the spirit of God. If it is a false doctrine, it comes from the spirit of Antichrist. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So he's saying this is not just the one final Antichrist, the false prophet who will point towards the Antichrist, um, or towards the uh, false Christ. He says, this is a spirit. This is a spirit that is already present in this earth. It is that satanic worldly knowledge, a worldly wisdom uh, that denies God's word and instead elevates man's word. So God here is giving us an example of how one can test the spirits. Uh, and this example is from John's day and age. This was something that he was encountering uh, when he was ministering, he encountered false teachers that were teaching that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh from God. Uh, <clears throat> so he was countering that false doctrine, but there are many false doctrines that we can counter and use to test the spirits. Uh, so here's an example to show that this was a doctrine that John was encountering in his church um, that he was opposing. So in 2 John, verses 7 to 8, <clears throat> excuse me, verses seven to eight. Now, second and third John are not doctrinal letters. They're not letters written like sermons to teach us. They're letters written directly to people within his church to combat um, specific contexts, specific teachings, uh, specific problems within his church. It's more like a Pauline letter to the Corinthians saying, here's an issue. This is how we deal with it biblically. So let's read the issue that John encounters here in the church, probably the church of Ephesus. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, 
those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Again, this is about sanctification, not salvation. This is about rewards, not eternal destiny. Um, he is writing to saved believers, as he'll affirm again later in our passage. Um, what he's concerned about is that they are going to fall into false doctrine and lose their rewards. After having begun the fight or begun uh, their walk by the Spirit, they're continuing by the flesh. And he says, no, we need to continue in the Spirit. We need to continue in the word that was once for all handed down to the saints. <coughs> Excuse me. And in John 1, 1 through 5, this is how he began his letter, by affirming that Jesus Christ was the one who came in the flesh. So we test John's message also by does it align with the word of God? It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And we move forward a little uh, later. He has correlated the word, the logos, with Christ. Now he says this word became flesh. This word became a human. It became incarnate in, uh, in a human body. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John here is probably talking about uh, the <clears throat> transfiguration. He and Peter and James all witnessed this transfiguration where the glory of uh, of the Father came upon the Son. Um, but John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is higher in rank than I, for he existed before me. He's identifying the Messiah as Jesus Christ, the man, um, God who came in the flesh. For of his faithfulness we all receive the grace upon grace. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. And he has applied this already in his letter um, in the second chapter, verses 22 to 24. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, notice here, John doesn't say anything about Jesus coming in the flesh. This is slightly different than the test for the spirits that's given in verse, uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. But this doesn't mean it's not a test to test the spirits. It's a different doctrine that John's dealing with. Um, he says, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. Later, he says, anyone who denies that Jesus was flesh is from the Antichrist spirit. Anyone of any false doctrine, that doctrine comes from a false spirit. So who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, of all the doctrines taught in Scripture, uh, there are some which people will call secondary doctrines. There are some which people call primary doctrines. I don't like this term uh, personally, but I, I do want to point out that there is some truth here. 
uh, I don't look at anything in scripture as secondary truth. Truth is truth. Um, so we want to affirm all of God's word, all of the scripture. Uh, it's a unit. We take it, uh, we take it as it is, and we read it literally. Uh, but doctrines concerning Jesus Christ are of particular importance. We do not want to get doctrines regarding Christ wrong. When the apostles teach a doctrine of Christ, we believe it. We don't question it. Jesus is the word of God. He is flesh. He is fully God. He is fully man. Uh, and here we see why. Because Jesus is the Christ. He comes from the Father. And to deny the Son is tantamount to denying the Father. Uh, we might take different views on the age of the earth, creation, uh, uh, whether there's a gap between verses one and two in Genesis or whether it, it is one. Uh, we can hold these views. One person will be wrong. Perhaps both people will be wrong. Uh, but there is only one right answer. There's only one truth. Our goal is to understand the truth. However, if you don't know or if you don't understand uh, <clears throat> whether or not there was a gap between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, that's not a salvation issue. That's not a salvation text. But understanding um, who Christ is, believing uh, in that promise, how to determine. Uh, we determine truth by taking scripture at its word. Sometimes we have to do a little bit of legwork um, to get there. Uh, for example, I'll, I'll hang on to that uh, creation episode, Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2, is there a gap of time in there? Uh, it doesn't appear that there is. The Hebrew text doesn't point us to that. Uh, that is not something that we uncover exegetically. That means when we read Genesis 1, it's not indicated to us that there is a gap of time there. So we're not going to assume that there is a gap of time there. There's a caveat there when dealing with prophecies. Sometimes a prophecy of Christ uh, will not indicate the gap of time between his first coming and his second coming. So there is precedent to find a gap somewhere, but we have to have scriptural data that makes it clear that there is a gap. Um, they try to put the fall of Satan between verses 1 and verse 2 in Genesis 2. That's the only place where there's any, any credence to finding a gap. If we're trying to fit in billions and billions of years, that's the wrong method of trying to um, understand scripture. If we're trying to understand scripture by scripture, then we at least have some precedent to do that investigation. If we're trying to reinterpret scripture by man's word, that's the wrong investigation. Cease and desist, begin with God's word and, uh, and form your opinions and your decisions from God's word, um, not from man's word. So that's essentially what is going on here. Uh, doctrines regarding Christ are incredibly clear in scripture. There's not much ambiguity. He is fully God. He is fully man. Hard to believe, but not hard to understand. Our task is to believe this, and that is a sanctification issue. Uh, what we believe about Christ, what we continue to believe about Christ, um, because uh, our faith in Christ, initial faith in Christ, is what saves us. Initial faith in God being the creator of the universe is not what saves us. That is an important doctrine to uphold for our sanctification, but it is our doctrines regarding Christ that saves us. So we want to be particularly concerned with believing 
what has been revealed about Jesus Christ uh, to us in our present dispensation. Um, so when the New Testament, especially the Pauline letters, um, the, even the Catholic letters, what they teach about Jesus Christ, we want to believe them. Um, in fact, we have no reason not to believe them. It is the word of God. Uh, so um, John uh, holds that in particular um, to a particular elevation, a particular importance within the doctrine of, uh, of the word of God. Paul also uh, holds this as an important doctrine. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, um, he identifies the source of believing in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So one who um, confesses that Jesus is the Lord must have the Holy Spirit within them. Now, again, there is a caveat here. A false teacher can know that you are using this as a test for truth. So they can give what's called lip service to a doctrine without truly believing it. Uh, this is uh, not just miming these words, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord, and uh, by the way, he's not the only one. Now that's a false doctrine, right? So one can physically say these words, but whether or not they are actually speaking these words as the truth which they believe uh, is a question of whether or not they have the Holy Spirit within them. One who says in faith, Jesus is the Lord, must have the Holy Spirit as well. That is saving faith, to believe that Jesus is the Lord. Saving faith is, uh, is uh, concurrent with receiving the Holy Spirit. The moment you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what leads us to that understanding that Jesus is Lord. Those go hand in hand. <clears throat> All right. We begin the second half of our uh, section of scripture here, John 4, 4 through 4, 6. Um, and there's going to be three different pronouns we want to be careful to look at. The first one is you, indicating the reader. So John is speaking to those who are reading his letter. The other pronoun is going to be they, speaking not of those reading the letter, but of the topic which he's discussing, false teachers, false prophets. Um, one, one commentator called them revisionists, those who try to change the word of God uh, because of the context. Uh, and then the third pronoun is going to be we. Now that either indicates John and the apostles as separate from the reader, or it indicates John and the reader and the apostles as an inclusive we. But what it does not include is the false teachers. <clears throat> So in 1 John 4, 4, it says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So John has uh, just finished saying that, uh, let's go back to that verse really quick. He says, um, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because false prophets have gone out of the world. Now he affirms, you are from God. He says, you are walking in this truth. He is affirming that his readers have not only received salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, but they are continuing in that faith. They are walking in that faith. They have not been dissuaded from this truth. 
He is writing to encourage them to continue in that truth. So he says, little children, you have overcome them. They have overcome the false doctrine. How? By believing what was revealed about Jesus Christ. They continue to overcome false doctrine. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, this may indicate Christ, Christ being in, uh, in the believer, that is through regeneration. Um, but I believe this he is probably indicating the Holy Spirit, because that has been John's uh, topic since the last part of chapter three. He began to speak about the Holy Spirit, which is in us, which gives us confidence before the throne of God. Now he's saying, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We can continue in our faith because the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. So when we are reading scripture, we interpret it through the Holy Spirit. So we are able to overcome false doctrine because the Holy Spirit is in us and guiding us into all truth. So when we read scripture, we believe scripture, and we measure all doctrine, all teachings by the canon of scripture. If it measures up to the word of God as written in the Bible, then we can believe it. If it does not measure up to the word of God, in the Bible, we do not believe it. So it says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is the Holy Spirit than the spirit of the Antichrist, um, the spirit of Satan in this world. <clears throat> Janet, I think you're typing, so I'll wait for your message. <laughs> All right. She says, that is Holy Spirit and not Jesus. I do believe he's speaking of the Holy Spirit here because of the context. Um, it is true that Jesus is in us. When we are regenerated, that is Christ in us. Uh, but I believe that John's context here, he's specific, specifically speaking of the person of the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit that he juxtaposes against the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of this world. Uh, remember that John does not... Uh, go to a large uh, effort in his gospel or in his uh, epistle here to distinguish between the persons of the Trinity. He at times speaks of God and Jesus Christ, and we can't distinguish which one he's speaking of, especially remember the first chapter when we had to, had to do some distinguishing of he may be speaking of God the Father, he may be speaking of Jesus Christ. John is well aware that these are two separate persons, but in the perspective of his epistle, he's looking at the Godhead. So what he is pointing out here is specifically the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I believe this he refers to the Holy Spirit. But again, um, he is not, um, he has not made it his purpose to draw lines and distinction between the persons of the Holy, of the Godhead. Um, really, if it gets down to the brass tacks of things, he's speaking of the Godhead. Uh, <clears throat> So we do have Christ indwelling us through regeneration. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us um, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and when we walk in that spirit, we are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we are um, yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. So greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, which indwells us that we have access to by walking in faith, by yielding to the spirit, by resting in Christ. Uh, by resting in the spirit, when we yield to him, that spirit overcomes the spirit of the world. When we mute the Holy Spirit, when we do not walk in truth, when we don't walk in the light, then the spirit that is in this world can deceive us. 
So remember, that is the importance of abiding in the spirit. We want to determine beforehand to follow uh, as the spirit urges. And the spirit urges faith in the word of God. Uh, when we encounter the word of God, we encounter it in a spirit of faith. Um, when we encounter it in a spirit of faith, uh, we have that power to overcome false doctrine because we are not approaching scripture in doubt. We are not saying, oh, God's word might be wrong. Uh, we are saying God's word is right. Whether or not we understand it properly is the question. So we do that prayerfully and we do that by the power of the spirit. We don't do that by man's word. Um, so that is what John is particularly concerned with here. We approach God's word in faith. <clears throat> and we want to remember uh, what we learned last time in the last part of 1 John 3, that faith and love are intimately intertwined. He says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So remember that this mutual, excuse me, mutual abiding of Christ in us and us in Christ <coughs> is intertwined with the Holy Spirit that he has given us. The Holy Spirit is what gives us new birth in Christ. It's what baptizes us into the body of Christ. And then he indwells us to be our helper so that he might lead us into all truth. And this is done through faith and it manifests in love. This is how can we discern if the spirit is from God? If the spirit is from God, it affirms the doctrines of God. So if it, uh, if it is the same as what is preached in scripture, regardless the doctrine, uh, but particularly the doctrines of Christ, if it affirms those doctrines, then that doctrine is not a false doctrine. Essentially, this is the same idea as when Paul says, if another angel or if if another spirit or even an angel comes preaching a different doctrine, do not believe it. Uh, that is how we test the spirits. Is it teaching the same thing that the apostles taught? Is it teaching the same thing as the word of God teaches? If it does not, is not teaching the same thing, then it is a false spirit. We have two examples in scripture that we've looked at today. Uh, one example is, are these false teachers teaching properly about the incarnation of Christ? The answer was no. They were not teaching that Jesus Christ was incarnate. Therefore, we know it's a false spirit. Another one was, is it teaching that Jesus came from God? Is it teaching that Jesus is the God-man? The answer was no. They're not teaching that. Therefore, they are false spirits. So we've seen two distinct tests of the spirit, and we have the principle given to us as well. Testing the spirit is measuring them up against God's word. If they measure up, it's not a false spirit. If they don't measure up, it is a false spirit. We want to make that very black and white, uh, just like John does. <clears throat> All right, uh, so we want to remember that faith comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, keeps us in that faith. When we rest in the spirit, uh, we maintain that faith and we are sanctified, we continue to grow, we continue to um, build up rewards for ourselves in heaven. <clears throat> we want to also continue to walk by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God 
the spirit that lines up with the doctrines of God. Uh, we want to continue to walk in those, to walk in the spirit, to continue in the faith that we once received. Now, I don't think, did I? I, I may have put a verse in here. Okay, well, we're going to see Jude um, verse three and four, verses three and four later, but he's going to tell us that uh, he wants us to continue to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. That's the same idea as walking in the spirit. Uh, we want to continue in that faith. We want to continue to rest in the spirit. Those are synonymous ideas. So he says, therefore, uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So again, here's Paul affirming that Jesus Christ was incarnate. But the idea of this passage is the spirit of Christ, that is life, versus the flesh, which is death. It, it promises no life. Uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So when we are trusting in the doctrines of man, this is walking in the flesh. Uh, think of the, uh, the brain inside the head. It's made of flesh. Uh, we're using that to, uh, to decide what's right and wrong. No, we use the spirit that is not an organ that is physical, but it is an organ that is active in the body of the Christian. We need to yield to the spirit when it is revealing truth through the word of God, not yielding to the flesh when the mind doubts the word of God. Um, so Paul continues and he speaks of the sources. Is it the flesh as the source or is it the spirit of the source? He says, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit of, is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. <clears throat> so we want to remember our three enemies um, and one of those is the flesh. And remember, this is not just sexual lust. Some people equate that as a one for one, um, that sins of the flesh means actually physically doing things with your skin and bones uh, to commit sins. This is not true. It's anything that emits from the self that is not the spirit, but the flesh that has died um, to, in sin. So we have these three different sources of evil. We have the world, the world system that uh, seduces us by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That means that Satan doesn't necessarily even need to be present in that temptation. The world itself is pitted against the Christian. Satan is the source of that um, corruption in the world through his deception, through his lies and through the curse. But the world itself being a cursed system and under the power and the domain of Satan acts on Satan's behalf. So we don't blame everything on the devil. The world itself is opposed to the Christian. 
the flesh itself, our own sin nature is opposed to the Christian. As well, the devil is opposed to the Christian. So our three sources come from these three corrupt beings, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, <clears throat> so we want to remember that anything coming from these sources is a source of the Antichrist. It is going to lead us into false doctrines. If we are relying on the flesh, if we are trusting in our own understanding, when it contradicts the word of God, we have put our trust in the wrong thing. We need to trust the word of God. That is the spirit of Christ. But Paul does continue, and he, he affirms that the spirit does dwell in the believer. It is our responsibility to yield to that spirit that dwells within us. So he says, however, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Every single Christian who has ever put his faith in God, his faith in Christ, has been reborn, has been baptized into the body of Christ if he is in the church age, and he has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which takes up a permanent abode within the Christian, never again to depart. Uh, so it is true of all Christians that the Holy Spirit dwells within them. Whether or not they yield to that spirit is a question of sanctification, not of salvation. So it says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, remember that is the flesh, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The spirit does not die within us, but we are to yield to the spirit which is alive rather than yielding to the flesh which is dead. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. This Holy Spirit which dwells in us is the very power of resurrection that will resurrect us in the last days to be with Christ, Christ as the first fruits of that resurrection. <clears throat> All right, so now he turns to the other pronoun, they. This is distinct from the readers. This excludes the readers. The intended audience of 1 John um, is not included in the they that he is speaking from. He says, they are from the world. Remember, we are from God, the readers. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Remember earlier in 1 John, I didn't include these verses, but he said, basically, don't be concerned if the world rejects you because they have rejected Christ first. They reject you because they have rejected Christ. Uh, we wear it as a badge of honor, honestly, if the world rejects us because friendship with the world is enmity with God. <clears throat> but how does the world think? What is its source of thinking? Uh, oh, first, uh, first John 2, 15 to 16, he says, do not love the world nor the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So remember, we want to be friends with the Father, not friends with the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So those are sourced in the world, not sourced in God. Those are of a false spirit. So again, these doctrines are not necessarily denying the one example proof text of, did Jesus come in the flesh? But they are sourced in a different spirit. They are not sourced in the spirit of Christ. So the lie that uh, 
Satan told Eve in the garden that she would become like God if she ate from the fruit of the tree. This was a false doctrine from a false spirit. It did not deny the incarnation of Christ, but it was still a false doctrine because it did not measure up to the word of God when he said, do not eat of this because on the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. So the test of a spirit is, does it measure up to God's word? <clears throat> so we have two sources of wisdom. Uh, we have the wisdom that comes from God as learned through the Holy Spirit by reading his word and believing it and coming to a better understanding of who he is as he has revealed himself in scripture. The other source of wisdom is worldly wisdom, and this is called demonic wisdom by James. We see that the source of this world's wisdom is not in God, but in Satan, and it is demonic. It is from the fallen angels. So he says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behaviors, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. So remember, our faith can manifest itself in love, whereas the doubt of the unbeliever does not manifest itself in love because he does not have righteousness of Christ. And therefore, whatever is manifest, whether it looks like love or not, is not truly of love. Uh, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom is, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. Acting in such a way is not wise uh, as the Holy Spirit teaches wisdom, but it is earthly. It is natural, similar to that term for fleshly. It comes from the flesh, not from the spirit, and it is demonic. So here we have the same idea of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have earthly, natural, and demonic. Uh, this is antithetical to the wisdom of Christ, to the wisdom of the Spirit. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this is as much directed to the Christian as to the unbeliever, in that we can put our trust in the wisdom of this world and so produce the evil fruits of this world, or we put our trust in the spirit that indwells us and so produce the fruits of the spirit. Uh, and that is what we want to do. We want to trust in the wisdom of God, not in the wisdom of the world, not in the wisdom of the flesh, not in the wisdom of demons. Uh, we want to trust God's word and so be used by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so our last verse, 1 John 4, 6, reads, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, so now we get to talk about this pronoun. We, in both Greek and English, is a little ambiguous. It can mean we, the speaker, excluding the listener, or it can mean we, the speaker, including the listener. Here in 1 John, it appears that this we excludes the listener. John, just as he has used we every other time in 1 John, is using it of himself and the apostles. They have the authority to teach truth because they were with Christ. They heard truth directly from him. 
and God reveals truth to the apostles as they are led by the Holy Spirit to write scripture. Remember, he speaks of the apostles who, who were not really of them because they did not continue in the truth, teaching the same doctrines as were taught by Christ. John is saying, we are the apostles. We have come in truth. We have come in authority. We have been given this authority by Christ to teach you about the truth. So he is saying, we are from God, as opposed to those false teachers who are claiming apostolic authority, but teaching false doctrines. They are not from God. They are from the world. But we, the apostles, John and the other apostles, are from God. Therefore, he who knows God listens to us. This does not mean, we including all Christian believers, that whatever a Christian believer says, if someone doesn't believe you, they're from Satan. That's not what's being said here, because a Christian can fall into false doctrine and teach false doctrines. And someone who does not listen to you is not listening to that false spirit that has deceived you. But the apostles were preserved in their message so that they might hand down the truth of Christ to the dispensation of grace, uh, age believers. So John is saying, he who listens to us, the apostles, he also knows God, because uh, he who knows God listens to the apostolic teaching. So he who is not from God does not listen to us. He who is not from God does not listen to, agree with, and affirm the doctrines of the apostles. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So here again, he has reaffirmed the principle of testing the spirits. How do we know them? They agree with apostolic doctrine about Christ. If they deny the New Testament teachings of Christ, this is a false spirit. This is a false doctrine, um, and it is dangerous to believe. It is wisdom of this world that is earthly, natural, and demonic, uh, not from above, not from the spirit of uh, Christ. So we want to, here's our verse from Jude, we want to keep the faith of the apostles. He says, I felt the necessity, this is Jude speaking, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Which faith? The faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. That means without change, just as God himself is constant, so the message of faith here is constant. The object that we place our faith in has never changed. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, this is our last section of verses. We're going to do the whole chapter 2, mostly just reading it and discussing it a bit. Um, this is going to juxtapose that spirit of, or the, uh, the natural mind with the spirit of God, the mind that is yielding to the spirit of God, um, so this is Paul describing to us the difference between the mind of Christ and the mind of the flesh. So he says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is saying he didn't come promoting his own ability to preach um, his own oratory skills. He didn't come as an exceptionally 
uh, skilled preacher, but he came with an exceptionally perfect message. It is not the skill of the teacher, but the message that he brings that makes him um, a good teacher. And Paul is affirming that. He says, I did not come with superiority of speech. I didn't come with fancy words and fancy turns of phrase in order to capture your attention and make you um, trust that I am a wise man because wisdom isn't found in Paul, it's found in the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is found in the message that he comes preaching. So he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He is weak in the flesh. He is fearful. He is submitting to God and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, not in the minds of men but in the power of God. So Paul yielded to the spirit, he yielded to the message, and that message was the power of his preaching, not his own abilities. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So he's saying to those who are mature in their faith, not the weak new believers, but to those who are being built up, we're giving them meat. This meat also does not come from the wisdom of men. It sounds wiser than, than the message of faith that is Christ alone, uh, but it continues to build on that foundation of Christ. And this is wisdom, but it is not wisdom as the world understands wisdom. It is wisdom as God understands wisdom. So the word of mystery in the New Testament, uh, this is a question from Janet. What does mystery mean? We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. A mystery is truth revealed, not truth concealed in the New Testament. That means that until it was revealed in the New Testament, it was unknown in the plan of God. God knew about it. It says here that he predestined this information, and that is uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the, uh, the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles during the age of the church. This was unknown in the Old Testament. This was not a doctrine that was revealed from, uh, from Genesis or even from Malachi. This was a doctrine that began for the first time during the latter half of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So even up until the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Pharisees as the Messiah over Israel, the knowledge of the church uh, was still a mystery. But that mystery was revealed through the apostles. So uh, Paul in, uh, what is it, Ephesians 3, says that he is the recipient of that mystery, that it is it was his, or it was given to him to reveal the mystery of the church age, the age of grace. Um, so that is what is being spoken of here by Paul. He says, uh, he came preaching the church. This isn't a new doctrine. Uh, this is a doctrine that was hidden in Christ, revealed by Christ to his disciples, revealed to Paul as well, and preached during the period of Acts, starting in Acts 2, when the church began, the message of 
uh, the church began. So let's uh, continue here reading the difference between uh, the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom of this earth. Uh, we see it exemplified here. He says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had been thinking spiritually, if they had yielded to the spirit, if they had put their faith in the Messiah, uh, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, for just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now I saw some, uh, or one confused look. Uh, had the first century Jews accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, uh, as their Messiah, they would not have crucified him, but he still would have been put to death in order to bring about uh, atonement. <clears throat> um, but he would have been put to death probably by the Romans um, in rebellion against Caesar uh, so that he would have paid the atonement. However, it was prophesied from the Old Testament that his own would reject him. So it was known that the Jews would reject him. However, the offer of the kingdom that he gave to them was a valid offer. Had they accepted him, he would have brought in the kingdom and he would have still brought in uh, atonement for our sins by his own blood, but it would not have been by the crucifixion of the Jews. It would have been through the crucifixion by the Romans. Uh, the sun. So what your question is, what possible way that the son offers the blood? Uh, so he was crucified uh, technically by the Romans still, uh, but he was denied by his own people and handed over to the Romans for crucifixion. Uh, so in that rejection, um, that brought about his work on the cross. Uh, but had they accepted him, he would have brought in the messianic kingdom. However, he still would have been crucified by the Romans. Is that your question, Janet? Um, because it says uh, because it says that uh, reason Jesus uh, died on the cross for our sins, right? But if the Israelites didn't, you know, crucify or shout crucify Jesus, if they are if they are not, then Jesus will not go to the cross. And then how then possible that the Son will offer His life mm -hmm. to us? Yeah. By not shedding the blood or shedding the blood, but of course shedding the blood, right? But if not on the cross, yeah. what way then? Yeah. Now, there was no way to avoid the cross. The cross was going to happen whether or not the Jews accepted him or denied him. Um, the rejection by Israel was a separate prophecy. He would be rejected by Israel. However, his offer to Israel was valid in that there was another option. It wasn't going to happen because it was prophesied from beforehand that it wouldn't happen. But uh, he was not crucified only because he was denied by the Israelites. That was the means, the method by which he went to the cross, but there were other means and other methods which would have led to the cross. Had the Jews accepted Christ, Rome would have put him to death for rebellion against Caesar. There is also another option that uh, has played around in my mind. If we look back to uh, Genesis 22, 
the offer of Isaac by, uh, by Abraham, where Abraham faithfully went to offer his son um, as God commanded. Uh, that may have been, uh, had the Israelites accepted Christ, that probably would have been the template by which they viewed the crucifixion of Christ, that he was a willing sacrifice, because it does have um, still corollaries where we look back to that offer of Isaac, and we see that it pointed forward toward Christ. It would have pointed forward toward Christ, not only in the sacrifice of Isaac as a willing sacrifice, but also in Abraham as a faithful um, sacrificer. Uh, so um, those two ideas, perhaps you can play around with. Um, I like the uh, second one, the Genesis 2-2 anti-type, because it's biblical, whereas the other one is only hypothetical. Uh, but the second one is the view of Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's a very uh, well-known uh, Hebrew scholar. Uh, so let's continue. We're almost done here. Uh, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. What did he reveal? He revealed what was written. He says, just as it was written, things which I has not seen or heard, God revealed this wisdom, this information to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, if we think to uh, Revelation 3, the church of Thyatira, it says they search the deep things, even the deep things of Satan. How do they search the deep things of Satan? By the Spirit of Satan. It's a different spirit. But the Spirit of God searches the depths of God. So uh, it is not the church of Thyatira that is searching the depths of God or depths of Satan, by the way, but it is some among them. So it says, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? So John or uh, Paul is giving us a principle here. We know our own thoughts because the thoughts of man are conceived in the mind of a man. So we're able to search our thoughts because uh, the mind and the flesh in the man are united. He says, even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. The spirit of God searches the mind of God because the spirit of God and God are one. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So we have access to the spirit. He has taken up his abode within us so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. The spirit searches the mind of God and reveals it to us, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Remember, it is the words that are the fruit that determines whether it is a good tree or a bad tree. So those spiritual thoughts give birth to the spiritual words, which confirm that it is a good tree. How do we test the spirits? Lastly, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. He does not receive those things in faith. He receives them in doubt. He questions them. He analyzes them not by the spirit, but by the man, mind of man, which is fallible. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord 
that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So that's the idea that we want to leave you with. Not only is the spirit knowable, it's testable by upholding it against the word of God, but we ourselves are indwelt by that spirit. So when we come to God's word in faith, the spirit will work through us to bring us into understanding of that word. So we want to always be in the word, learning who God is through what he has revealed about himself. We want to believe those things, and we want to discuss those things with him in prayer. Through scripture, we receive God's word, we understand God's will, and through prayer, we communicate back to him. Uh, so we want to continue to come before the throne of glory with confidence because of the Holy Spirit in prayer, and we want to come to the word of God in confidence because of the Holy Spirit as well. So the Holy Spirit is our helper uh, in this age. All right. <clears throat> that is 1 John 4, 1 through 6. We are moving fast. Uh, so let's close in prayer. And then uh, are there any prayer requests? Um, still the same. The same. Oh, I have a prayer request. Um, uh, she is in the group, but uh, her father have a positive, uh, you know, COVID. So, just uh, pray for her father. Yeah, we'll pray. For, uh, okay. For the COVID yeah. pandemic and, and those we know. Yeah, sure. Thank you. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, that you have given us the Spirit of Christ that we can know your Word. Um, as we read and we uh, come to an understanding, not by our own wisdom, not by our own uh, thoughts, but by the Spirit of Christ within us, leading us into all truth. Uh, we thank you that the Holy Spirit also gives us confidence before the throne, that when we uh, come before you in prayer, uh, we know that you hear those prayers. And when we pray in the will of, uh, in the, will of the Son, uh, which is the will of the Father as well, uh, then those prayers will be answered. Those prayers will be given a positive response. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you keep us in your will, that you keep us praying those things which are in your will, and to keep us in the word as well, that we uh, come to it with an expectation of belief, with an expectation of faith constantly yielding to the Spirit and what it teaches. Uh, Lord, we pray for, uh, for Lisa's daughter, uh, that she come to an intimate fellowship with you uh, through the Spirit. Uh, we pray that she be uh, grown and upheld uh, by your spirit, in your spirit. Lord, we pray for, uh, for Janet, uh, our beloved friend, on her birthday. We pray that it is a birthday of blessing and that she can bless others through that. Uh, we also pray for the COVID pandemic and those who have been affected, um, those who are ill and those who have passed away because of it. Uh, we pray for families and those uh, still affected by it. Uh, we pray for health and recovery as well. Uh, and we pray for recovery of, uh, of this world. We know we might not see another revival before you come, uh, but Lord, we'll take either one. Um, if you, Terry, we'd love another revival. We'd love for your word, uh, for the message of your son to spread through this world. Uh, but we would also love for you to come quickly. Um, so, Lord, we pray that you do come quickly. We know that there will be a revival during the tribulation period, though that will be um, otherwise a very dark and terrible period, the day of the Lord. 
Um, but Lord, either way, we pray that you come quickly to take your church from this world, uh, but that we be about your business, preaching the gospel until that day, that we be found uh, faithful on the day of your arrival. Lord, we pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. 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 Thank you.